Here's one of our favourite moments from Jason Lawrence. Check out the full show on our podcast feed. Hey, this week uh, we are wrapping up this season of Epic Tales. This is Melbourne's most incredible untold stories. Yeah, and this week's Epic Tale is uh, one that I am very, very passionate about. Uh, We're going to introduce you to a young lady named Ash. I met Ash through an incredible organisation called Mirabelle who do some unbelievable work. Um, But I first heard Ash's story. I was at a ladies' lunch fundraiser for Mirabelle. Yeah. Uh, I don't... You never would have been to one of those lunches. You may have hosted them because uh, when you get a 1,000, women in a room, it's very hard to get people to stop talking. Love hosting this. Yeah. <laughs> But when Ash started speaking, you could hear a pin drop. Her story is quite extraordinary. It's very, very emotional. It is very heavy, um, especially the start of the story. But I really ask you to stick with us on this one because it. It is quite incredible. The following content discusses drug use and contains drug references, which may be confronting or distressing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I didn't have any friends as a child. No parents would really let their children hang out with me because they knew what my mum was like. A man rocked up who was actually her drug dealer. He had a knife behind his back. I let him in and he smiled at me and then he went for my mum with a knife. Jace and Lawrence Epic Tales. Hi, my name's Ash McNamara and this is my Epic Tale. Ash, welcome to Epic Tales. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Ash, you have an incredible story to tell of how you got to where you are today, but your life wasn't easy when you were little, was it? No, it was quite tough. I was born to my mum who was addicted to heroin. She never told me who my father was. I didn't have any friends as a child. Uh, No parents would really let their children hang out with me because they knew what my mum was like. Pretty much fed and looked after myself, so I'd have to sort of get myself dressed, get myself to school. I'd find whatever I could in the house to eat. I think I lived off stale Pop-Tarts for most of my childhood. Did you feel protective over your mum or was it just a bit of a whirlwind? I did, yeah. I wanted to help her. I really wanted her to get out of those situations that she was in. So, I mean, she'd have people in the house. She'd have men constantly rotating through the house. And I would do things like pretend to injure myself so I'd be on crutches to get her attention. Or I'd wet the bed just so she'd have to come in and sleep in the bed with me. But I was trying to do anything, I guess, to get her away from those people and try and change her, I guess. What was your relationship with your mum like? I went through a lot of, I guess, trauma growing up with her. Uh, I guess my first memory that I ever had was being about three years old in South Australia. She'd moved me away from my grandparents and she'd had an engagement party and a man rocked up who was actually her drug dealer and he was coaxing me to the door to come and let him in and uh, he had a knife behind his back. I let him in, he smiled at me, and then he went for my mum with a knife. I ran into my bedroom and my mum hid behind me. How did it end? Did he just storm out and leave? He ended up pretty much trashing my bedroom and breaking everything he could, and then my mum's partner managed to get him out of the house. God, how you get past that as a kid, I don't know. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of happy memories as a child. It was one thing after another. 
My mum's partner's mum had rung my grandparents here and said that I was roaming the streets with no clothes on at 4am and she had no idea where my mum was and my mum had gone out on a boat trip and sort of just left me there. No one was really too sure who was meant to be looking after me, so I was just out there on my own. We had her partner's grandmother ring my grandmother in Melbourne and say, she's left Ash, she's roaming the streets at four years old, she's got no clothes on, it's 4am, she hasn't eaten in a week. So they rang my grandpa to come and pick me up from South Australia on Christmas Eve and he came and returned me to Melbourne. It's, it's hard to comprehend, like, as a kid, I don't remember much. I don't have a no, lot no, of really was... vivid memories. Is it quite clear, the memory? Yeah, they're very vivid, and I think that's a, that stems a lot because I have a, a lot of, I guess, sleeping difficulties, a lot of nightmares. I still have them, you know, nearly 30 years old. It still creeps up, and you still have those vivid dreams of things that had happened that, you know, even things that you'd sort of suppressed, I guess, a lot. You must have been scared as a kid. I don't think I was. I think I I just, like I said, went into survival mode. My grandma tells me all the time I never cried as a child. I think I just did what I needed to do to get through it and to make sure that I came out okay. Um, and even from that young age, I just don't think fear was necessarily what I was feeling. It was more like I need to get through this and I need to do what I've got to do. So... Let me get this right. At four years old, your mum's gone off on a boat cruise and left you to fend for yourself. You're walking the streets at 4am, you haven't eaten in a week, and now your grandparents have had to drive from Melbourne to Adelaide to save you and take you back to their place. Did your mum even reach out and make contact with you? My mum would call probably every second night and say she was coming back to get me. Did you wait for her? Yeah. Um, my grandma tells me she used to have to come and get me from the veranda because I'd just sit out on the veranda waiting for her to come back and she just didn't. How long did it take till she finally rocked up at your grandparents' house? It was around three years, and then I lived with her for a couple of years until it just got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore, and I ran away in the middle of the night. She'd lit all my clothes on fire to teach me a lesson for having dinner at my grandparents' house because she didn't like that I was sort of, they were having to feed me. She felt like she was incapable. Um, so she put all my clothes in a pile and got her lighter out and said, like, lit them all on fire on her bed. And you would have been how old? Uh, I was 11 going on 12 then. I was terrified at that point. It's probably one of the scariest moments. She became quite physically abusive as well and the neighbours actually yelled out for her to stop or they were calling the police. So you've gone to your grandparents, your mum has taken you back and these are her parents that you were mm-hmm. living with. Yeah, that must have been terribly difficult for them trying to care for you but also seeing the hope in your eyes of wanting to go back with your mum. Yeah, I think it took a massive toll on my grandparents. Especially if your mum's getting the courts involved to try and get you back. How did your grandparents cope with all of that? The whole court process was incredibly gruelling for them. They had no financial support through that so they paid, you know upwards of $20,000 to try and get me to live with them, but the courts would just constantly send me back into her care. It got to the point where I did run away and the courts ordered that if I didn't go back into my mum's care, the federal police would come and remove me. So my grandparents had to give me back to avoid that situation from happening. Wow. So at this point, you're 12 going on 13. You've been ordered 
by the state that your grandparents have to give you back to your mum or yeah. else federal police will be involved? They would physically remove me, yes. So did you move back in with your mum? I had to go back for two nights and it was the most awful two nights. She was an absolute mess just pleading with me to give her another chance and to, you know, things would get better. But, you know, I walked out of the room, walked back in and she was using again. We went and had a meeting with DHS and I just said, I cannot do it. I can't go back there. I went back to my grandparents. DHS finally allowed it and it was ruled by the court that I was allowed to stay there. Let's go to the moment you were at your grandparents' house and there was a knock at the door from the police. It was a funny evening, actually. I had a 21st I was meant to go to and normally I love a good party, but something inside me wasn't right. I went to bed very early. It was about 9pm and at about 11pm we got a knock on the door from the police. I knew that it was something to do with my mum. How long since you'd seen her at this point? It was actually quite um, hard. She'd rung me the night before and I didn't answer the phone. I saw her calling and I didn't want to talk to her. When they knocked on the door, they asked to speak to my grandmother. They just said, we found your daughter. She's died of a heroin overdose. I was just stunned. I don't even think I cried. I think I was just so... It was a mixture of emotion. It was relief that, you know, she was finally in a better place. It was anger that it had gotten to that point where I now had no living parents. I couldn't even sleep with the lights off for about six months. I was just constantly scared of what was going to happen next. I still to this day wonder what that phone call was all about. And then again, that survival mode just kicked in. I had a funeral to plan. Do we make the funeral public or private because we don't know what sort of people are going to rock up or who's going to come? The funeral itself was quite difficult. It was looking around at all her friends' children that I looked at and I could just see myself at that age and it just took me back and, you know, I just wanted to grab those kids and say, if you can get through the next couple of tough years, you'll be able to get through anything in life. Did you ever feel like you were waiting for that call or that knock on the door? Yeah, I know growing up I had nightmare after nightmare. It was either about my grandparents passing away or it was about my mum passing away. And it was just a feeling that I had that eventually I knew was going to happen. I held so much resentment for so long yeah. and eventually I got to a point where I was old enough to realise that drug addiction is actually an illness. She didn't really want to be that way. No one could possibly ever want to be that way. And she was genuinely sick. And I think once she had passed away, I'd actually had the time to reflect and realise that it was a disease and I've had to accept that. And I do forgive her for everything because no one wants their life to be like that. And I almost feel sadness that she never went overseas. She never lived in a nice house. She never got to, you know, buy anything nice for herself. It's sadness that she never got to experience that. It takes age and experience and courage to get to that point where you forgive someone. Th that um, must have felt like the biggest weight off your shoulders. But also pure love, I think. Like, that's the you could only have that kind of care and love for a parent or a child. Yeah, it's definitely an unconditional love and I will always love her. She is my mum. She wasn't the perfect mum, but she was my mum and it's the only one I'll ever have. Mm. So it's just, yeah, it is forgiving her and loving her unconditionally for what she was. After 
you got through the funeral. Was there a moment where it was sort of closure for you and it was time to now just focus on your life? Absolutely. I think after the first initial few months, um, I definitely changed my mindset and I decided that it's time to put it all behind me. How are you doing now? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really good. I have really shifted my focus onto everything, health, fitness, well-being, yoga, uh, and I just find it works really well for me. I'm super happy. I've got some supportive friends. Uh, my grandma, who I adore. She's beautiful. Yeah, she's and I've heard you speak of her before. Yeah. And what an extraordinary woman. Well, you know, our relationship's quite funny. We're sort of like sisters, but we're like best friends. We bicker like sisters. We love like best friends, but she's my grandma and my mum. So, you know, it's probably the most special relationship that I've had in my life. I missed a lot of my education but somehow I actually picked it all back up for VCE and got a scholarship to university. I did professional and creative writing and literature. So you've gone through all this yet you've still managed to get excellent grades at school, get a scholarship to uni and then you got to do something people dream of doing after uni. (laughs) Tell everyone what you did. I bought a house, so I think I bought my first property. I would have been around 23. Wow. Is that the first property you lived in that actually felt like a home? Definitely. It just felt like I'd finally achieved what I'd set out to do. I knew I wanted to do it straight out of high school, buy a property, finish uni. When you were so young and going through it, you didn't, thank goodness you had your grandparents there, but there wasn't a lot of help and a lot of support for you or for them in that situation, was there? No, not at the very start. I think my grandma found a Families Anonymous type group that she was able to go and speak to. And then we stumbled across the Mirabelle Foundation. The support and love that they gave to my grandmother and I was just amazing. We actually couldn't have gotten through the situation without them. They look after children who've been abandoned from parental drug abuse. At the moment, we're actually doing a tutoring program through COVID. So every night on Zoom, there's about 20 of us volunteers and we're paired up with a child and we can just run through their homework, which, I mean, with the girl that I'm paired up with, it's more just to catch up for a chat. I look around at other children that have been in my situation and it's quite sad to see that majority of them will end up in a similar situation and that's because that cycle hasn't been broken at that age and I think that's where Mirabelle is so important and so crucial is that they do step in and they create that line and they cut that cycle so that child has a chance of actually having a normal life. There's people listening now who connect with a story like this that want to help these kids. Yeah. What can we do? Mirabella always on the hunt for volunteers. They yep. also uh, have a lot of fundraisers. You can donate on their website. Their programs are so important. I can't stress enough how much they helped me. I mean, I got a scholarship to university with the assistance from them. They just make sure that kids are given that education, that they have a chance at that normal life that they otherwise probably wouldn't, and that they're just given that support. I mean, if you don't have that safe place to go to talk about what you've been through, then you're never going to heal at all. You're going to take it into adulthood and, you know, you're never going to be able to have that chance of becoming your own person and separating yourself from trauma. Hey, Ash, thank you so much for sharing your epic tale. I I can imagine that wouldn't have been easy, but hopefully you're helping people out there that unfortunately were in the same situation. So thank you. Thank you. 
What an incredible young lady she is. Wowie. And, you know, I have heard that story quite a few times because I've known Ash for a few years and it never gets easier to listen to. And it's just, it's so sad that some kids are born into this world where it's just the easy road is to get caught up in the same cycle. And what is so important is that these kids get a chance, like every other kid, to break the cycle and to have a normal childhood. Well, they can with the help of one of the people we're about to be joined by, someone you know very well. Yeah, Ash was speaking about the Mirabelle Foundation before. They do some incredible work. And right now we're joined by Dan Clohesey, who is a youth worker for Mirabelle. G'day, mate. Hi, Loz. How are you going? I'm great. Hey, thanks so much, firstly, for introducing me to Ash. She's just such a beautiful girl and she's been telling her story this week in Epic Tales, but you must see and hear stories like her all the time. It's not that unique, is it? No, I mean, while it is an epic tale, uh, Ash's story, it's actually one that's quite common to children that grow up in families where um, drug addiction is, is a problem. Um, we're incredibly proud of the, the person Ash has become and her ability to tell her story. She's, she is really incredible. But, yeah, we, we see many, many children who are incredibly impacted by p- uh, parental substance use. Um, hey, Dan, we... Uh we very proudly made a donation and I was wondering, because I know there'd be a lot of other people out there that have heard Ash's story and want to help as well. When donating money to an organisation like yours, what does the what does the coin get spent on, mate? Well, Mirabelle has a really broad range of programs, but our primary focus, as Ash said uh, multiple times during um, her tale, it's, it's about breaking the destructive cycle of addiction for these children. It's yep. about reducing the stigma of parental drug use and it's about giving them the childhood that they deserve and donations go towards an enormous range of ways that we support kids. We support them through education. We support them uh, through assisting them with uh, engaging in community activities. We take kids on camps uh, and programs, and we're so excited to be returning to those in the coming weeks. Um, And we have lots of uh, programs that also support the carers that assist people like Asha's grandmother, you know, provide children with a loving, stable, environment. And, you know, in Ash's story, I think the thing that got to me, I mean, there's a lot of really awful things in there, but the thing that really felt like an arrow through the heart was when she said that other kids weren't allowed to hang out with her because of what was going on in her house. And she had that innocence of her childhood taken away, which is the innocence of making friends. So those those camps and things are just absolutely invaluable. But how can people donate and support you guys? We um, have had such a challenging year, as all charities have, as we all of us have in the community, but I think the vulnerable only just became more vulnerable over the last uh, couple of years, and we just really need support, financial assistance, to get our programs back on track and and return to doing what we do best. So donations through our website, uh, mirabellefoundation.org.au. There is uh, instructions there on how you you might be able to contribute and any donation, large or small, at this uh, 
point in time would be so well received. We we really we're working with over uh, 1,900 children at the moment wow. across Victoria and New South Wales, and uh, we we're really keen to to get back to doing what we do best. Well, mate, hats off to all you guys there because you do an outstanding job, and uh, unf- and unfortunately our community needs it at the moment, and we really appreciate you jumping on. Thanks, Dan. No, no worries at all. Thank you so much to for giving Ash a voice and for giving Mirabelle children a voice. It's it's so so important, and we're so proud of Ash. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Jason Lauren podcast. For more great content, check them out on socials at Jason Lauren.